This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. Well, this is my third visit to the Northern Territory as Prime Minister. I intended to come to Alice Springs in December, uh, but COVID got in the way uh, of that appointment. Last week, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese flew to Alice Springs in the Northern Territory to address what many have called a crisis. Today we have uh, some significant uh, announcements to make, uh, but also uh, some foreshadowing of future activity to deal with. The pressures which clearly have been felt here in Alice Springs. With rates of break-ins, assaults and domestic violence soaring, yesterday the federal and territory governments were handed a report outlining some solutions. Some, like the federal opposition leader Peter Dutton, have called for a crackdown and for the federal police to intervene. But many traditional owners and Aboriginal organisations in Alice Springs say a crackdown would only repeat the mistakes of the past. Today, the deep roots of the crisis in Alice Springs... It's Thursday, the 2nd of February. Sarah, you travelled to Alice Springs last week. How do people that you spoke to describe the environment in the town? I went up there for a number of days um, last week and I spoke to a lot of people on the ground. Sarah Collard is an Indigenous Affairs reporter at Guardian Australia. Basically, the the mood in the town is quite tense right now. I think a lot of people are feeling frustrated because of what's going on, because of, you know, there has been an uptick in in crime and antisocial behaviour, but they're also feeling frustrated with the way this is playing out in the media and a lot of negative attention on their town. So it's a a complex situation and a, a lot of people are hurting. So I spoke to, to Donna Archie, who is the CEO of the Central Australian Aboriginal Congress, which is the main health organisation in Central Australia. She said the town was under siege. The town's under siege. And she said that it's affecting everyone, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people who are living in the town. And it's not just me, the whole town's hurting. Businesses, you know, um, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people together are suffering. And and Donna is a a Bundjalung woman originally from New South Wales uh, but has lived in Alice Springs for over 30 years. Her home was broken into twice in the space of a week and it's something that she had never experienced before. Has something like this happened before? Like never. No, never. The second time was particularly frightening for her. Two grown drunk men broke into a home brandishing a large spanner and, and, you know, she was really frightened at home alone. It's not just break-ins, right, Sarah? What else is happening in the town? We're also seeing, and this is kind of bearing out in the police statistics which have been reported, there's been a a huge spike in property break-ins, commercial break-ins in homes, domestic violence and family violence and alcohol-related assaults. I also spoke to Sherling Campbell, who is the coordinator of the Changanjia Women's Family Safety Group, and that is one of the main advocacy and preventative organisations in Alice Springs. And she's a strong spokesperson around domestic violence, and she says that domestic violence and family violence uh, rates are rising dramatically. And on top of that, Aboriginal women are the ones being locked up. Our women prison is getting safe, flopped, full up, 
The reason around that is family and domestic violence. The reason why they do that is because they're protecting themselves and their children. Um, no one's not listening and supporting those women as well. Over the past year, Property offences in Alice Springs have jumped by almost 60% and assaults uh, more generally have increased by 38% and uh, really um, shocking and and terrible is the domestic violence assaults have have doubled at 50%. Sarah, many have linked this jump in violence to the end of alcohol bans in many remote communities in the Northern Territory mid last year. What do people tell you about what is fueling this violence? I think just from what people have have been saying is that the alcohol restrictions lifting has played a part in this, but it's not the the sole reason. Many say is that this you know links back to colonisation, that links back to the heavy-handed approach from the Northern Territory intervention that has been in place for 15 years that many people feel has disempowered communities and, and left a lot of people frustrated and angry. I spoke to Cherise Buzzacott, who is an Aranda midwife. So I trained in and around Alice Springs. I worked in remote communities. And, um, yeah, my mum, so three boys. She now works with Children's Ground, a, a, an organisation which works with families and, and kids in communities around Alice Springs and the Territory. And she was saying that some of these issues that we're seeing now, and it's, you know, it's basically two issues, you know, you've got the, the crime and the adults really are struggling and there's a poverty and housing crisis. We've, there's also a lot of kids that are roaming the street. And they've got nothing in their community. Like, it's like... Some of the kids that are coming uptown, they just want to use the internet. They want to connect to the Wi-Fi. That's all they want to do. And they're on the street and they're making TikToks. And it's like, it's something so simple as having Wi-Fi available for kids in the community alongside of, you know, safe housing and nutrition and all of that sort of stuff. They don't have playgrounds. Wi-Fi is a big issue. You know, they want to go on TikTok and social media like any other kid. And, and that's just something that isn't there in their communities and in their homes. So they're coming into town to access the free Wi-Fi. Right. A playground and Wi-Fi sounds like a fairly simple ask. But so far, we have seen nearly $50 million of extra funding pledged by Anthony Albanese split across the police service and various frontline services, including Aboriginal organisations. But they've also implemented a temporary crackdown on alcohol. What does that look like? So the federal government, in conjunction with the territory government, has a real show of unity and force after, you know, what has been a political stalemate for the last couple of weeks, announced a number of new measures. They announced Monday and Tuesdays that takeaway alcohol would not be allowed and would also be restricted uh, between 3pm and 7pm with a limit on one purchase per person per day. And the NT Chief Minister, Natasha Files said that, you know, this would be basically policed via the banned drinker registrar, which basically means that anyone who wants to buy alcohol and, and take it away needs to show photo ID. And, and this ban can mean that people can not be allowed to buy alcohol from anywhere from three months to 12 months. Mm. Albanese has flagged that the current restrictions could be replaced by a total alcohol ban in remote communities surrounding Alice Springs. How likely is that at the moment? Look, I think it's a matter of waiting to see. Luricha woman, Darrell Anderson, she was recently announced during this suite as, as the uh, Northern Central Australian 
controller and she's provided an initial report on Wednesday. And this was uh, after consulting with communities and people on just how the past few days have gone and whether there needs to be more restrictions, whether there needs to be tighter restrictions, and this could include a total alcohol ban. Right, so stay tuned from a presser from Albanese and maybe the, the territory minister on that. What do people think of this idea in Alice Springs, banning alcohol in remote communities? Is it a good solution? Well, I think that many people that I spoke to, including elders and, and, and people, felt that total alcohol bans and restrictions weren't a solution. Shirlene from the Tangentia Women's Family Safety Group told me... It's a bad day, personally. Um, I've seen this impact before um, around the alcohol and uh, um, the timing of the hours of the sales. That's not going to stop. Alcohol is not the big assumption and the driver of domestic violence. Alcohol is basically like a numbing key for that... Um, yeah, just, you know, just to numb people from the intergenerational trauma, which we carry that every day. Some elders have cautiously welcomed these restrictions, saying that, you know, something did need to happen, but that it also needs to happen with conjunction with other efforts, you know, addressing access to, to housing, access to healthy food and, and, you know, lifting the poverty rate. You know, these are things that need to, to happen and they haven't really been addressed in the 15 years that we've had these alcohol bans. Mm. And that, that, that while the organisations are getting, you know, that face time with people like the Prime Minister, and it must be said that is a very, very rare occurrence, that people in just the ordinary town don't feel that their solutions are, are being heard. Uh, so Sharice, who has also lived and, and worked in the town for, for all her life, she spoke about just how important it was for, for governments to listen to what they want. We want to put funding into community-led solutions, but we really need to be part of the consultation. We need to be part of the conversation. Aboriginal communities have the answers. They know the communities, they know what they want and they know what they need and they can fix this. They just want people to work with them. Some, like the federal opposition leader, Peter Dutton, and some locals in Alice Springs would like to see a crackdown in response to this. So do I think the Australian Federal Police should go up? Absolutely. They'd like to see more policing. And we have seen the government commit more than $14 million to more policing in Alice Springs. What would more police in that region mean for First Nations people? Well, I think for a lot of people, that brings a lot of fear. I mean, just a few weeks ago, before Christmas, we had the Northern Territory Police blow in additional resources to Alice Springs as a kind of blitz on, on crime and, and social issues. And for a lot of people, they feel that that's not really addressing the root cause, that you can't police your way out of this. And that's something that the police commissioner himself has acknowledged. But for many people, they are afraid of heavy-handed approaches like the police, like the military. It's something that people uh, are really scared of. And, and this was repeated again and again to people that I spoke to, that they are terrified of police. They're terrified of more people coming in who don't know the community, who don't know the issues and will, you know, in some cases, exacerbate what's going on. What people fear here is another anti-intervention. We fear curfews, military, you know, federal policing, the over-policing that's happening, we know that that's not an answer, doesn't work. Um, closing the bottle shops, restricting liquor, it, it, it's, it's, that's not facing what the actual issues are. 
Next, Indigenous Affairs Editor Lorena Allen on why 20 years of government interventions failed to prevent this crisis. So, Lorena, both you and Sarah have been looking at the causes of the crisis in Alice Springs. What have you learned? The locals have told Sarah that poverty, you know, dispossession, the long unresolved trauma of colonisation uh, and the disadvantages that have been embedded after years of these kind of punitive government policies and then the neglect of service delivery in remote communities as well that happened under the intervention. I mean, the Alice Springs traditional owners were saying that, uh, you know, the current crisis in Alice Springs arises from what they called the chronic and systemic neglect of our remote communities over many decades. There are things here that should shame our nation, the parliament and its elected representatives. Of course, one of the most well-known punitive government policies in the Northern Territory is the intervention. Can you tell me about this time and what impact it's had on Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory? Okay, so back in 2007, the Howard government received a report called Little Children Are Sacred. It was actually commissioned by the Territory government to look at child safety issues in in Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory. It found that Aboriginal child sexual abuse was an issue of urgent national significance. The report did say, though, that it was critical that any solutions to the crisis had to be developed in consultation with Aboriginal communities in a child-safe way. But that didn't happen. What happened was the then Indigenous Affairs Minister, Mal Bruff, claimed pedophile rings were operating in Aboriginal communities. Those allegations were later roundly discredited by the Australian Crime Commission after a long investigation in 2009. But John Howard used that report and those claims to declare a national emergency. And without warning, the Australian Defence Force was deployed to 73 Aboriginal communities Uh, under the guise of community safety. The Howard government had to suspend the Racial Discrimination Act to make that possible, and it got bipartisan support. So that was where grog bans were introduced. But the Howard government also compulsorily acquired township leases, which put an end to Aboriginal community-controlled councils. It suspended the permit system over Aboriginal lands. That was the permit system run by the land councils. Income management was introduced and was compulsory uh, for all community residents receiving welfare payments, still in operation in the Northern Territory, where up to half a person's welfare income would be quarantined on this card and couldn't be spent in stores that sold alcohol or pornography or cigarettes. And locking people out of the cash economy so, you know, you you couldn't pay off a fridge, for example, because your ability to do that on the basics card was severely limited. And the prescribed communities, there were big signs out the front that said there were penalties, severe penalties for alcohol and pornography. Medical teams were flown in to conduct health checks on children, which are actually quite long and involved and quite invasive um, processes. Police presence was increased in these prescribed communities. And so they did feel like there was a, another kind of, it was a kind of invasion that was the intervention. It was really tough. People, Aboriginal people were terrified and they still talk about how frightened they were when the army was rolled into their homes. What happened to the intervention in the end? There were several parliamentary reviews over the course of the intervention, including one by the, the National Audit Office, the ANAO. 
that showed that many of the social problems that the intervention was meant to tackle uh, actually became worse over time. But it was really hard to tell because there weren't adequate evaluation systems of the policy uh, set up. It was very much on the run. Internationally, there was a lot of scrutiny around on Australia around that time, and even the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights strongly criticised the intervention for its breaches of, of Aboriginal people's human rights. Mm. The intervention expired in 2012, uh, but the Gillard Labor government passed the Stronger Futures Act at that point, which extended many of the intervention's regulations for another 10 years. So welfare quarantining, school attendance measures, penalties for alcohol and pornography use were all extended despite a lack of evidence that these measures were effective in in any meaningful way. Stronger Futures then had a sunset date of July 2022. And so that lapsed without either the federal government at the time or the territory government of the time intervening. So when that lapse happened in July last year, all the alcohol restrictions lapsed as well. Mm. Lorena, we know that many Indigenous organisations warned the government that the lapsing of the grog bans could spell trouble. The NPY Women's Council wrote to the Morrison government in May last year saying that women and children would be put at risk. AMSANT, the peak Aboriginal health body for the NT, pleaded for more time to consult communities and to prepare. Why were they ignored by the government? Well, there's an obvious answer to that question, isn't there? Because governments don't listen to Aboriginal people. The Northern Territory Chief Minister at the time, Michael Gunner, said that those intervention era alcohol bans were racist and it was time for communities to make their own choices, Mm. to opt in rather than opt out. So, and the Morrison government said it was up to the Territory to make the call and it didn't oppose the lifting of the bans. Broadly, what what community organisations and people who have worked in the health fields warned about was that these bans had been in place for 15 years and to lift them all at the one time would be disastrous. Communities needed time to get used to it, to make their own decisions, but something should stay in place until they were ready to deal with the consequences. Mm. The, the kind of blanket lifting of the ban was as dangerous as the blanket imposition. So, Lorena, after all of these government policies, after sending in the army in, under the intervention and spending millions and billions of dollars over more than two decades, we know that the social outcomes for Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory remain poor. And many people have pointed to that as part of the, the reason we're seeing this violence right now. Can you talk me through that? Let's walk through some of those problems because they have a long tail. So a big one is housing poorly maintained by the Northern Territory Government who have responsibility for the delivery of public housing. I mean, one one old lady had a blocked toilet and a leaky shower for 269 mm. days. Another lady lived without air conditioning for, for more than a year and a half in some of the hottest parts of Australia. Aboriginal families in the Northern Territory are living below the poverty line. Uh, They have limited access to essential services. Uh, During the COVID lockdowns, Aboriginal people were talking about how they were going without essentials. Um, And one survey in 2020 found that 43% of Aboriginal people in remote communities report having gone without food in the previous 12 months. There was the Work for the Dole scheme the CDP, um, which was very punitive. Um, if you you had to do 25 hours a week 
of work for the doll or your payments would be uh, suspended. One of the consequences of that is that social problems rose, including kids breaking into homes to steal food. Then, of course, as we mentioned earlier, the cashless welfare and income quarantining, you know, unintended consequences like people not being able to buy toys for their kids because of, you know, the um, quarantining of income. People having to choose between buying food or medicine. And the cashless card across the Northern Territory, there was something like 18,000 people on that system. But with the, the, the debit card in Alice Springs, there were 398 people on it. And that's where there was the highest increase in crime in across, across the NT in 2021. Then, of course, we know that there are often, very frequently, 100% of all children in detention in the Northern Territory are Aboriginal kids. We know there have been long-term cuts to family and domestic violence uh, support services. There's a lack of safe places for Aboriginal women and children to go. I mean, Linda Burney was in Alice Springs last week and, and was shocked to discover that there are 16 intensive care unit beds at the Alice Springs Hospital. 14 of those 16 beds were occupied by Aboriginal women who'd been attacked. Lorena, why is this history in this context so important when considering how to tackle this, this current crisis in Alice Springs? Well, it's important because it, it's shown governments clearly what doesn't work. These policies have not helped 20 years on from the intervention, life for Aboriginal people, Aboriginal children, who were supposed to be the reason for the intervention in the first place, have not improved. In fact, things have gotten demonstrably worse. So the lesson is, the lesson of history is to not repeat the same mistakes. You know, this is a town in crisis now. Cynics have told me, well, it's in crisis only because the white people are affected now. Aboriginal people have been living with this all their lives and things have to change. They really have to change. It can't be plainer. There needs to be a different way of tackling this problem and the obvious thing to do is to listen to the people who live it. That was Indigenous Affairs Editor Lorena Allen and earlier Indigenous Affairs reporter Sarah Collard speaking to Cherise Buzzacott, Donna Archie and Sherlene Campbell. Sarah spoke to many more Aboriginal bodies and traditional owners while in Alice Springs. You can read about that in her feature titled Under Siege, As Alice Springs Becomes a National Flashpoint, Locals Fear What Comes Next. I also recommend Lorena's explainer on the history of punitive government policies in the Northern Territory titled Grog Bans Return, What is Going On in Alice Springs and How Did We Get Here? We've linked to those and more on the full story page. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Ellen Beater, and Camilla Hannon, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producer of this episode was me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow.